The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, January 29th, 2024. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news... A utility company's plan to repower their natural gas plant near Eau Claire is getting some pushback. A large-scale transportation program is helping seniors and people with disabilities get to their medical appointments. Last week, Madison's Common Council narrowly rejected a budget amendment that would have increased their pay by 60%. And in the second half, a closer look at tabletop gaming, a retrospective on Winston Churchill, and two movie reviews. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are your headlines. A Dane County Circuit judge will allow Governor Tony Evers to be deposed as part of the lawsuit against two Republican lawyers involved in the attempt to use false electors in Wisconsin in the 2020 presidential election, reports the Associated Press. As part of their defense, the two Trump-affiliated lawyers have asked that Governor Evers be deposed since he acted as a Democratic elector, as well as former Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. It is unclear what information the defendants hope to gain from deposing Evers, although in a previous statement, Evers said that he believes they committed crimes and should be held accountable. The civil lawsuit is currently scheduled to go to trial by September of this year. It is unclear whether state or federal criminal charges will be filed. The Wisconsin Supreme Court issued an order today instructing the Wisconsin Election Commission and the Wisconsin Presidential Preference Selection Committee to respond to a complaint from Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips. That comes after it was announced that he would not be on the ballot in the Democratic presidential primary this upcoming April. The selection committee, who chooses who will appear on the ball- on the primary ballot, consists of the state party chairs, the minority and majority leaders in the state legislature, and other party officials. It is bound by law to include any candidate whose candidacy is recognized in national news media. However, the Democrats on the committee only presented Joe Biden as a candidate in the primary, omitting Phillips, a congressman from Minnesota, as well as author Marianne Williamson, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Phillips is asking that the state Supreme Court take the case take the case on an emergency basis with a possible decision issued in early February. Two Republican state lawmakers have introduced new legislation that would put a temporary stop to hunting does or antlerless deer in the northern part of the state, reports WPR. The proposed legislation comes after a significant decline in the deer harvest last year, an 18% drop from the previous year in the number of deer killed. While the deer population in Wisconsin is up overall, that growth is not evenly distributed, and severe winters may have negatively affected herd numbers in the northern part of the state. The number of deer killed may also be due to declining due to a decline in the number of hunters. Since 2000, the Wisconsin DNR reports that deer hunting license sales have been decreasing steadily. The proposed ban would last four years and would include all or part of the 20 northernmost counties that make up the northern forest zone. 
Workers at an ocean spray plant in Wisconsin Rapids are moving forward with a unionization vote to be held later this week. It's the second attempt to unionize the plant following a failed attempt back in 2014, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. If successful, the union will be represented by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. The organizers have accused Ocean Spray of engaging in intimidation in the run-up to the election. The union vote will be held on Thursday and Friday. A representative from the International Brotherhood of Election Workers said that he hoped this would serve as an example for other Ocean Spray plants in the state. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration released a statement today saying Shep's Ice Cream of Madison is facing more than $140,000 in fines after workers were exposed to anhydrous ammonia at their ice cream plant, records the Wisconsin State Journal. Anhydrous ammonia is used in refrigeration and can cause respiratory injuries and burns if it is mishandled. In the complaint, OSHA alleges that Sheps had inadequate safety procedures to handle the dangerous chemicals. The plant is on Madison's east side near the Barrymore Theater and has more than 250 workers. Sheps has 15 business days to contest the fine or pay the penalty. A Dane County Circuit Judge Circuit Court judge indicated that he will not or he will let the closure and sale of two housing projects move forward. The two projects, owned by a limited liability corporation affiliated with U.S. Bank, were meant to offer housing to homeless people in the Madison area, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The two projects, the Rethke Terrace on Madison's east side and Tree Lane Apartments on Madison's far west side, were both given a court-appointed receiver following severe financial difficulties to help facilitate the sale. In a separate filing, the city of Madison said it did not oppose the sale, but hoped that the current tenants in good standing would be protected from displacement during the transition period. The Ulbrich Botanical Gardens held an event yesterday to sign the 18,000 new tiles that will be used to renovate the Thai Pavilion this year. The community event had Madisonians put small messages of hope, peace, and respect on the tiles, imitating a process that went into constructing the original Thai Pavilion more than two decades ago. The tiles will be available to be signed for the remainder of the week if you want to visit and add your own message of hope. The Madison Metropolitan School District announced the finalists today for their superintendent search for the district. The three candidates are Mohammed Choudhury, a former state superintendent of schools for the Maryland State Department of Education, Dr. Joe Goddard, the current superintendent for St. Paul Public Schools, and Dr. Yvonne Stokes, a former superintendent of Hamilton Southeastern Schools in Indiana. The three finalists were picked from a pool of more than 60 applicants and the next round of interviews. And next, next face a round of interviews, including some in front of a panel of community members. The interviews will be completed by early February, with a likely decision from the MMSD school board by early March. Those were the headlines, and now on to today's top stories. A utility company has submitted an application to revamp a natural gas station near Eau Claire. The company says repowering the existing facility is overdue, but environmental activists say energy companies need to prioritize clean energy instead. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Patricia Popple is an environmental activist and resident of Chippewa Falls. She coordinates the Frac Sand Sentinel, a citizen newsletter that tracks the frac sand mining industry. In a recent post on her blog, she notified her readers that a subsidiary of Excel Energy is looking to repower an existing natural gas facility in Chippewa County, in the town of Wheaton. 
She says the project poses public health and environmental risks. When you have natural gas that's used as an energy source, it also creates pollutants in the air that people can breathe in. And climate change is a part of that because the chemicals and so on are warming the atmosphere. The proposal comes from Xcel Energy, an electric and national gas company based out of Minneapolis. Xcel serves millions of customers across eight states, including Wisconsin. Recently, the company applied for permits from the Wisconsin Public Service Commission and the Department of Natural Resources. Environmental activists, including Popple, say the project invests in fossil fuels rather than prioritizing clean energy. Last May, environmental nonprofit Clean Wisconsin requested to intervene in the permit process. They requested just over $100,000 to offset the project's cost, which they say could impact Xcel Energy customers in the area. Xcel Energy says the generating plant needs new fuel units that would run on natural gas or diesel fuel. They point out that the plant is more than 20 years past its design life. They've retired one of their six fuel units on site, limiting their capacity to produce enough energy in the summer and winter months. Xcel Energy says that approval of the project would make the plant produce energy more reliably and efficiently while decreasing emission rates. The permit before the Public Service Commission is now in its final public comment period which ends tomorrow. So far, it's received more than 78 comments. Many of the comments express concerns about the plant's environmental impact. Others point out that an approval would conflict with the governor's goals to prioritize clean energy and reduce carbon emissions in the state. Last week, Wisconsin's DNR released their preliminary determination on the Wheaton plant. Based on their analysis, they found that the project meets the state's standards for emissions and air quality. According to a facility supervisor with the DNR, their final decision is likely to come in early March, and the Public Service Commission is scheduled to consider the project proposal in a series of meetings over the next month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. A Wisconsin organization carries out a large-scale transportation program that helps seniors and people with disabilities get to medical appointments. The program is already short of volunteer drivers, and recent hospital closures have added more pressure to serve clients. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. This week, a Midwest healthcare system announced the closure of two hospitals in western Wisconsin. Those who help transport older people to medical appointments say the situation underscores the need for volunteer drivers. The pending closures are in Eau Claire and Chippewa Falls. They're among the many areas served by the new Freedom Transportation Program from the Center for Independent Living. People with disabilities, frail elders, and veterans are given rides to the doctor, grocery store, and for other basic needs. Program Director Bobby Hegna says the roster of volunteer drivers has had difficulty recovering from the pandemic. We have some counties that there are no drivers in, and so we're constantly recruiting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The closures also include some primary and specialty care locations. Hegna says one of the effects is that many patients will have their appointments on the same day at other providers, putting more pressure on existing drivers. As they call for more volunteers, Hegna hopes the legislature will consider stronger funding for transportation and similar support programs. Jim Flaherty with AARP Wisconsin says there's real concern having fewer providers will impact older residents in rural areas, which have aging populations. He says closing gaps will require community involvement. Flaherty adds telehealth is a good option and infrastructure needs to catch up. Wisconsin has a great need for stronger 
high-speed broadband service. It's got to be affordable and it's got to be accessible. Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the Republican-led legislature have been at odds over how much state money to commit to current broadband efforts, with more federal support coming in. As for the closures, Hospital Sisters Health System says they'll likely happen over the spring and that it's trying to safely wind down services as it transitions patient care to other providers. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Madison's Common Council has been looking for ways to increase community engagement since before the pandemic. Now, most meetings are open to the public via Zoom. But some alders say that their current wage is not livable, and their day jobs make it hard for them to engage with their constituents on a regular basis. At last week's meeting, a proposal to raise their annual salaries from just over $15,000 to $24,000 failed to pass. Alder Sabrina Madison of the Far East Side voted in favor of the pay raise and spoke to WORT News producer Faye Parks earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Alder Madison. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just generally, the idea of having full-time alders with increased pay, how exactly would that, in your opinion, improve community engagement with the council? In short, I think, one, if we had, let's just go with if we had a full-time council. It would just mean that you literally have basically what amounts to a full-time staff person addressing constituents' concerns that goes along with it. We all serve on several committees and or boards. While we're serving on committees and boards, preparing for those committee meetings, preparing for common council, preparing for upcoming development. Some of us are also hosting regular neighborhood meetings, for example, for a neighborhood that may be seeing some level of development. And so sometimes you have to weigh, do I spend my couple hours replying to emails or phone calls or text messages, or do I want to spend those couple hours, for example, setting up a neighborhood meeting, you know, structuring who's going to get a index card or a postcard, for example, and coming up with a copy for that. So each task oftentimes has, like any job, it has a list of other associated tasks until you get to the end goal. So simply it would mean that constituents would have more opportunities to reach us. For example, with our recent snow, lots of us got emails about that. So I was able to, you know, use some of my time to help folks, you know, whether it was getting a volunteer there to shovel out a mailbox, for example, or trying to explain to them how they can report an issue like a business, you know, had not plowed or shoveled their sidewalk, for example. So I think it would just simply mean they would have more access to all this for some of their day-to-day concerns. And then we would in turn have a bit more time to work on neighborhood meetings and increasing engagement. So my understanding is that some current alders have time for more than the, the expected 20 hours a week spent working on common council duties, that kind of thing. And then some of them really only have time for those 20 hours. Have you seen that effect how people engage with their community members? Is that reflected in how much people really hear from their representatives? Well, I can't make any judgments on each individual alders because, you know, I don't see their workload. I don't know their priorities. I don't know how many emails they're receiving. I can really only speak to how I would engage. But what I will say is that it is tough for folks like myself and folks like District 8 Alder NGR because he's also a full-time student. Or you have someone like Alder Bennett, before she got her full-time job, she, you know, shared publicly that she was facing losing her housing because 
you know, she just couldn't afford to go to school, work a job, and be alder, even though she's doing an exceptional job of serving as alder. So it just depends on where you're at in your life. Some folks may be retired, so they may have a pension or, you know, some sort of retirement benefits or Social Security, for example. And then some of us who, like, I found in an organization, so I can't, you know, short my organization hours on my time. So we have to work. Everybody is sort of in a different boat. I can't really speak to what their workload and their priorities are. I can just say that if this was my full-time job, for example, I can be available, you know, 40 hours a week to folks. Last week, the Common Council narrowly rejected a proposal to increase Alder's annual salary by 60%. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about that proposal and then what ultimately happened at that meeting? I can't remember which Alder suggested we bring it down from, I can't remember the exact amount, but in all the proposed, bringing it down from the proposed amount to, I believe, $20 an hour. And I believe it was Alder Duncan who proposed bringing that down to a little bit over $17 or so. But that one did not pass either. But there was, you know, there was still like 13 or 14 folks interested. But it required a 15-member vote because it was a majority item. And then Alder Field, I believe he was a no vote on the $17. So when you vote no on something... You can also quickly pretty much ask to reconsider it. So he asked for the vote to be reconsidered. He sort of alluded that he would be more in line with supporting something a little bit over $15 or around 15 bucks. And so he reconsidered it. We voted again at that $15 number. And Alderwood Haley, I don't know if she voted yes on the 20 plus dollars, but I believe she voted yes on the $17. So this time, I believe she voted no. So where Alder Field voted yes to support that 15 but voted no on the 17. Alderwood Haley and others, of course, voted no too. There was one, I think, abstained, but it ended up not passing because either folks didn't support, you know, 2017 or 15, and then there was the vote change. From what you heard, what are the main concerns when it comes to increasing annual pay? I don't know how much, you know, my fellow alders spent understanding how rigorous serving as alder can be for some folks. But what I heard a lot after that vote, I heard from, I won't name, but I did get a couple calls from two alders who shared that they did not realize there are alders who they really can't afford to be alder. You know, they are struggling financially. They don't have a second stable income or they, for example, were at risk of losing their housing. I will say what I share with those alders is that we have heard about folks' struggles with being alders financially, at minimum since I've been alder in October 2022, so I don't know where the disconnect came from. But what we were hearing leading up to the vote is really what was being mimicked across social media, where it appears that there are, you know, a collective of folks who are kind of really unfortunately sharing misinformation about people or misinformation about the role of alders and what we do. So, for example, we got a couple emails, you know, that were kind of saying we're lazy, you know, we don't do anything, we're living high off of taxpayers' dollars. Now, again, I can't speak to what anyone else does, but I know absolutely that's not my story. But I also want to point out, I got positive emails, and we got positive emails that went to all of us that, you know, thanked us for our service, that did say they supported, you know, a modest raise. For me, what it comes down to is that this is a more diverse council, right? Lots of folks are very excited about us being a more diverse council. But that also means when you have a more diverse council, of course, you have more folks of color on the council. And so what you also see is what we see in just the regular workforce is where you have folks of color, you're extracting a lot of labor from folks of color. 
without necessarily fair compensation. So in this regard, you have folks who are themselves facing financial emergencies or the inability almost, you know, to hold on to their housing and getting very close to eviction. Where in a regular traditional, you know, workplace world, we would never support something that's set up like, you know, serving as alder, for example. That would be a cause for concern in the workplace if you see, you know, a few of your employees are facing eviction. The employer will come up with some sort of solution. That's why we have, you know, employers pick up and create employee assistance programs, for example, because employees have concerns. They have, you know, just life that happens. And sometimes when your pay is so low, that creates other issues for you. But in short, what we were hearing is that we were lazy. You know, we don't do anything. We're living high off the hog. And there was, I I remember getting a message where they believe that we made more money than we did. So there were some inaccuracies on what we're actually paid. So what I'll just say is I saw lots of misinformation out there. And what we were getting in email mimicked some of the misinformation that I was seeing across social media. Do you think the pay raise will be reintroduced at a later date? I do think so. I have a conversation, um, not about alder pay, but I intend to bring up the question with the city attorney just to ask, because again, I've only been audited since October 2022, and I've never, you know, asked for something to be brought back that we've already decided to vote down. And so I do intend, it is my assumption that other alders are interested in the same thing, but I intend to not let it go and to bring it back when we can bring it back. Because I think there will be more of us, at least I could say, Again, for myself, that I will do a better job of publicly showing what I'm doing. That's why I began to track my hours in a way where it's not just me, you know, with a paper and pencil writing it down, but using an app that would allow me to just track my hours and create a graph that I can share with the public so they can see this is how at least I spend my week. Folks who know me from being older and out in the community, no one will attach the word lazy to me anyway. But I also just wanted to to show the public, like, sort of like, to unmask what it looks like to be older for a week, for example. And so sometimes it's better just to provide facts and information to counter all the misinformation and give people something they can look at. So when someone is telling them, you know, alders are lazy, they're not doing anything, they're living high on the hog, they can look at my week and see how much time I spend on the tasks that I've worked on that week. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Alder Madison. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. That was Alder Sabrina Madison of the Far East Side. She says there's a lot of misinformation about how much alders are actually paid and how many hours they spend working on council duties. Last week, she voted in favor of a proposal that would have increased alders' annual salaries, but the proposal ultimately failed to pass, even after several proposed amendments. your time right now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Two Saturdays ago, Noble Knight Games, a Fitchburg game store, hosted an unusual tournament. The tournament pitted Star Wars fans against each other in a tabletop game. The winner gets a chance to compete in Adepticon, the world convention of tabletop games, which takes place in Schaumburg, Illinois, later this spring. WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski was on the scene to learn from the players what they love about the iconic game Star Wars Legion. All right, can I get your name? Sean Krigolski. Nicholas Schott. 
Tom Vandervelden. Sean Pertee. Yeah, um, I'm Alec Noe. Uh, Isaac. Sure, my name's Josh. So my name is Tyler uh, Evans. Uh, Zach Reynolds. Zach Matthews. Uh, Zach Lovedahl. My name is Declan Manning. How did you learn about Legion? So my buddy Nick, uh, he got it for Christmas, started picking up stuff. We played a couple of demo games. I was like, this is really good. So I was like, well, there's only two factions, so I'm probably not going to get into it. Then they came out with more. I was like, all right, fine, I guess I'll play. Star Wars Legion as a game started with Fantasy Flight Games, who do a lot of uh, board games in general. I've been a fan of their games for years, so when they announced that they were doing a miniature war game in the Star Wars universe, I just ended up picking up stuff as they came out. Actually, when it first came out, the local game store up in the Fox Valley called uh, Boardlandia, they put on an event to like introduce everybody to the game. Um, and being a huge Star Wars fan and a gamer, I was instantly like, yeah, I'm into that. So When the pandemic hit, um, I was living down in Racine, and one of the local stores um, had a bunch of Legion stuff. And I started with, oh, you know, it'd be fun just to kind of paint a model or two. I'm never going to play or anything like that. I'm not going to you know, spend my money in that regard. Uh, as I painted more and more models, I started to have more and more things, and then, I'm, you know, then it just snowballed into playing with other people. Yeah, um, my dad used to, my dad still does play, um, we play together, he bought the original, like, box set with the, um, with the Empire and the Rellion set. Uh, a few years back we went to a game store and there were a few guys playing and we just asked them about it. There was a local group that was, um, in Milwaukee that was starting to form to try to get people into it and, um, and kind of went from there. Yeah, so, uh, I come from... Uh, another miniatures game called Star Wars X-Wing, which mainly the Star Wars IP has brought me into it, and I uh, started playing this because I like the hobby aspect of it. So I was actually working at a game store when Legion came out, and I was already in the company's other game, X-Wing, so I was very excited to see a more small-scale war game because other games like uh, Warhammer and things like that are very intimidating, have a very high price point of entry, and Legion was comparably tiny. So what really got me back into Legion to dive in was um, when Atomic Mass Games took over, they started tweaking the game and really made it more interactive and I think more fun for the better. So that was the... I, I finally I did a demo with um, one of my friends, Zach Lovedahl, here. And I was like, yeah, I'm, they solved the stuff I really didn't like about it. I'm, I'm in, I'm hooked, and I've been going since. Um, I've been playing X-Wing for a while, which is, was made by the same company at the time. And then when I saw the ad that they were coming out with Legion, which was just Star Wars 40K, I was in. That's two, th two things I like, like mini wargaming and uh, Star Wars. So that was an easy sell for me. <laughs> so I've been a huge Star Wars fan my whole life. Um, my brother and I saw this a game called X-Wing uh, a couple years ago, and we thought it was super cool, so we got the core set, and then we were hooked, or at least I was, and we saw Legion, we thought it'd be cool to try foot soldiers instead of spaceships. So we started, we got a Clone Wars core set, and we split it, and I've been going strong ever since. Do you usually play competitively or more casually? Uh, I'm a very competitive player. I'm a more competitive player. I try to get a couple games in a week if as much as I can. Um, any of the major tournaments I can get a hold of in the uh, in the Midwest here, I'd say a competitive player, yes. Um, I think I prefer to play competitively just because the group of guys here, the Wampa Squadron in the Madison, Milwaukee area are 
just great guys and they make competitive legion fun like it's not cutthroat or whatever but it really just makes the games that much more challenging and fun so um i i love the competitive part of it not the best um definitely learning this is probably about my sixth tournament that i've ever been to um but i you i come from a, a very competitive magic background so this this was a it was a different transition and i'm i'm loving learning it kind of split probably more casually just because it's getting a single game in is a lot easier especially with the the length of the game it's not a short length miniature game it's like multiple hours long so mainly casually but i love going to tournaments i've probably been to four or five at this point i probably try and get up out to one every every few months uh usually pretty casually but go to a competitive tournament every once in a while so most of the time casual, I picked up on the game right as the pandemic was starting. So my main opponent was my son, who's also here. Uh, so it was mostly kitchen table games with the two of us. And then once the pandemic let up, we kind of mix it up. I'd say about 50-50. We try to come to a lot of the local tournaments just to meet new people. So I don't know. I'd say I'm more of a competitive player now. <laughs> uh, definitely more of a competitive player. Uh, that said, today I'm learning a lot. <laughs> it depends on the game. I'm at a point now in my life where I kind of get a balance. Kind of a half and half. Like, I, I can take a game seriously and try to win, but I, I also like to have fun and play something thematic and interesting. So I actually don't play as much as I would like to. Uh, so far, uh, I've done two tournaments, and I, I, I like to play casual games, but I don't really honestly know at this point. I... I, I, whenever there's an opportunity to play, period, I just play. What's your favorite part about the game? Um, I think the the turn zero tactical decisions and how that can just set the landscape for the entire game is really appealing to me because it's, you take a lot of time to kind of figure out your best turn zero and turn one actions. That it and it's so dynamic that it really just keeps the game exciting and new every every game. My favorite part about a game is the alternating activations. Uh, in most traditional war games, you go your you go with your whole army, and then your opponent goes with their whole army. Star Wars Legion changes things up by doing alternating activations, where one of your squads go, one of my squads go. It keeps the game engaging during both players' turns through the whole turn. Being able to act like a kid, you know, using my uh, my you know, I, I paint models, so getting my models painted and seeing them on the board getting to hang out with your friends and play with your toys all day. It's just really fun and great way to meet new people. So, For me, it's the people in the community. I'm just like, hey guys, I've never played in a tournament before. And they were just like, awesome, we got you. And just, you know, friends with them. Like, I was just part of the group. I, you know, I wasn't some scrub, some newbie or anything like that. You know, they, I got my butt kicked, but they were they were kind about it and they helped me grow so that was that's one thing that i really appreciate about it is the community well i love star wars as like an ip and all the characters so it's a lot of fun to um get the models of you know the characters that i know and love and paint them and like put them together and just play with them in general more from like a mechanical standpoint i really enjoy a lot of the in-depth choices you have on what you're gonna do on a turn there's a good amount of um like decision making with movement and how you're going to place your models um, and where you're going to put them. And I think probably the most interesting mechanic is how the melee functions. I think there's a lot of interesting um, interactions that happen when melee gets into the game. Uh, I really enjoy the tournaments and the community of people. 
obviously the fact that it's Star Wars and it, it really feels extremely cinematic. So it actually feels like you are playing in a Star Wars game with real heroes and the vehicles and all of the the actions that get carried out. It, it feels like you're playing in one of the movies. Uh, so my favorite part is the combination of the iconic characters with your everyday Joe soldiers. Yes, you've got your characters that do awesome things, but the meat and potatoes of your list are still just the regular guys doing the regular jobs, and it's important stuff that they're doing. You can't just ignore them or you're going to lose. I think Legion is such a theme home run. Um, so like today I'm taking Han Solo, Chewbacca, and a bunch of Ewoks. They do a great job where... You see stuff in the movie and it's so easy to translate it to the table. I like the hobby aspect too, doing little creative stuff. I magnetized some of my models. I took aquarium rocks to give some of the poses better support. Um, I'm not a great painter, but I feel like I'm slowly getting better. So it's, it's the, where the theme and the hobby really mesh. And that's probably my favorite part about the game. It's just the immersion into what you're looking at on the table, especially when some people have really great terrain and really great paint jobs. You kind of just sit down at the table, it just looks really cinematic and fun, so it's, it's easy to kind of just get sucked into it for me, and I, I love that about it. Just, I, I'm, like I said, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and I love so much to try to like recreate those epic battles you see in all the movies, and yeah, so it's definitely a Star Wars theme. What army do you play? I'm a Shadow Collector player. Ah, uh, so bounty hunters and such. Yeah, dirty mercenaries. I'm an Empire player. Mostly Rebels. I just like all the characters in Rebels, so it makes it even more fun. But I uh, dabbled in other armies, but I mostly stick to Rebels. I, I have a soft spot for, uh, for the Wookiees, and they came out with a battle force that you could play all Wookiees, so I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I play um, the Galactic uh, Army of the Republic, uh, or Gar, so the clones um, with like Obi-Wan, Anakin, Yoda, and that whole that whole set. I play almost exclusively Empire. I did that because, honestly, I wanted to learn how to paint white. And I figured with stormtroopers and snowtroopers and a lot of the others, uh, well, troopers that are mostly white, it would give me a chance to sort of practice that technique and it just kind of took off from there. Normally I play the, the droids, the, the B-1 battle droids, like in episode one, uh, but recently I've been playing a whole, every model is a Wookiee battle force, which is uh, also fun. Uh, so currently it's this Tauntaun list. Um, I've been experimenting with Republic, and I also really enjoy that. Right now I'm out here playing clones because I just finished painting them, and I'm, I'm having a blast. Uh, the droids, the Separatist Alliance. Mainly just because when we split the course set, my brother really wanted to do Republic because everybody loves the clones. And I thought, you know, I like the bad guys enough. I do Empire and X-Wing, so I might as well continue that theme. And I actually like them a lot more than I think I would have liked Republic. Do you plan to go to Adepticon this year? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I do. It'll be my first time going, so I'm super excited. Um, I've been to a lot of other conventions, but never to Adepticon. And it's nice because it's so close. I know some people are going from literally all over the world. I do. Um, my dad has his world invite, um, so I thought I'd go along with him, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and play in the last chance qualifier. Uh, probably not this year. No. I do. I actually won a world's championship um, in the summer, so I'm planning on playing there in that. Yes, definitely. I, I normally wouldn't, but I have won a world's invite, so that is kind of drawing me into it. 
So I go to Adepticon no matter what. It's so close, and I've been in the X-Wing community for a while, and it's such an international gathering of friends for that and the Legion community. So I would go even if I didn't have an invite. Any final thoughts, either on the game or Adepticon or anything else? Uh, I really like the game. I like the Adepticon as well. Like It's just such an interesting change of a lot of uh, conventions are very focused on like selling stuff, whereas Adepticon is a lot more game-focused. So I really enjoy that. Tournaments are a great amount of fun. I heavily suggest even for competitive tournaments, if people are interested in the game, to come on by and take a gander at what's going on. Yeah, I mean, Noble Knight Games, uh, this is my second time playing in a tournament here, and they couldn't be better hosts, offer awesome prize support, such a fun store, because there's always, like, other games going on and stuff. It's really um, makes for a fun day, you know, getting order food, player games, it's a blast. I've lived all over the state. This game, this community, everything is the best that I've ever seen. I've, you know, if, if you're looking for some place that's all-inclusive, you know, so far this place, Noble Knights, has been amazing at that. The community, if you come in and you want to learn how to play, we'll gladly teach you. So I've played a number of miniatures games, and I would say that this is probably the friendliest community that of all the games that I've ever played. So if, for people that are interested in checking it out, um, I would say, you know, come to the local scene. No, thanks a lot to the store for uh, hosting this event. It really means a lot to the, you know, the people who play the game. Love that you're here, giving the community a spotlight. This is a great community. The Madison community is just awesome. It's friendly. It's welcoming. Uh, you know, I'm a belligerent outsider, and they've been very nice to me. Um, so if they accept me, they'll take anyone here. They're great. I think the game's in a great spot right now. It's really fun. Hope it continues. Tomorrow is the anniversary of former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's funeral. In his day, he was not especially popular amongst working-class people. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the retrospective for this week's The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, January 30th, is the anniversary of the funeral in 1965 of former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Churchill, though portrayed as a hero today, in what British-Pakistani author-activist Tariq Ali calls a Churchill cult, was in his day hated by many, especially working-class people. That's why he lost the 1945 election. He was also a white supremacist colonialist. He supported using poison gas against the civilian Kurds in Iraq in 1917, sent troops against striking workers, and helped kill over 3 million Bengalis in an enforced famine. One of the most memorable moments of the funeral procession was when the cranes on the London docks dipped as the funeral barge went by. But this wasn't a spontaneous gesture of respect. The dock workers had originally refused to dip the cranes as they didn't like Churchill and had to be paid extra to do it. In 1937, Churchill expressed his views of subject peoples in a submission to the Palestinian Commission, arguing, I do not agree that a dog in the manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done. During World War II, Churchill threatened to use poison gas over Germany in retaliation for the bombardment of London. He told the British public, I might have to ask you to support me in using poison gas. We could drench the cities of Ruhr and many other 
cities in Germany in such a way that most of the population would require constant medical attention. Then there is the horror that actually occurred, the joint British-U.S. firebombing of Dresden, where between 25,000 and 40,000 people died. The city had no military or strategic value, but it was an important cultural and historic city for the German people. Had the Allies lost, this would surely have been considered a war crime, along with the U.S. firebombing of over 60 cities in Japan. Tariq Ali has written a new book on Churchill, Winston Churchill, his times, his crimes. Ali has said in interviews that he has focused on three Churchill crimes in the book. The 1943 famine in Bengal, India, which killed over 3 million people. The assault during World War II on Greek resistance fighters and his actions during the Welsh miners' strike. Ali is not alone in his assertions. A 2019 study reported in the British paper The Guardian on the famine quotes the study's lead researcher at the Indian Institute of Technology, Ganhingar Vimal Mishra. This was a unique famine caused by policy failure instead of any monsoon failure. Food supplies to Bengal were reduced in the years before 1943 by natural disasters, outbreaks of crop infections, and the fall of Burma, now Myanmar, a source of rice imports into Japanese hands. But the Nobel Prize-winning economist Amarta Sen argued in 1981 that there still should have been enough food for the region and that the mass deaths came about as a combination of wartime inflation, the speculative buying and panic hoarding, which made food unaffordable for poor Bengalis. Most recent studies say the famine was exacerbated by the decisions of Churchill's cabinet. They were repeatedly warned that the exhaustive use of Indian resources for the war effort could result in famine, but they continued exporting rice from India, even as requests for 1 million tons of emergency wheat supplies was being requested by the Indian Viceroy. Churchill has been quoted as blaming the famine on the fact that Indians were breeding like rabbits and asking how, if the shortages were so bad, Mahatma Gandhi was still alive. Britain had denial policy in the region in which huge supplies of rice and thousands of boats were confiscated from coastal areas of Bengal to deny resources to the Japanese army in case of future invasion. On December 3, 1944, the British army in Athens, Greece, opened fire upon 200,000 marchers supporting the resistance. They armed pro-fascists who also fired on the crowd. 28 mostly young boys and girls were killed and hundreds were injured. This led to a brutal Greek civil war that installed a right-wing dictatorship. The heads of resistance fighters were cut off and displayed outside the prison camps. In the Welsh mine strike of 1910, Churchill, then Home Secretary, called in troops to end the strike. The strike was defeated, but a more militant union emerged to fight another day. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson is back and reviews two new movies. He says, The Radical Tom Wolf, a small-screen documentary on a political conservative who changed the world of journalism, is pretty good. But while Poor Things has received 11 Oscar noms, Harry doesn't recommend it. I belong to the party of the opposition. He was a contradictory character. You would never know such a polite person with a pen in his hand could be a terrorist. We just don't have journalists that huge anymore. That was Luke from the trailer for a pretty good documentary, The Radical Tom Wolfe, directed by Richard Dewey. Wolfe was one of the most prominent journalist authors to come out of the 60s. 
The movie tells his unconventional story in a pretty conventional way. Talking heads, clips of interviews with Wolf across the decades, and so on. Our chief talking head here is writer Michael Lewis. The movie is adapted from his 2015 Vanity Fair article. Others interviewed for the doc include contemporary writers, friends, and admirers. Gay Talese, Lynn Nesbitt, Terry McDonald, Tom Juno, Christopher Buckley, Neil Ferguson, and Alexandra Wolf, his daughter. The one critical commentator in the movie is Jamal Joseph, a writer in former Black Panther, who talks about Wolf's notorious New York magazine piece, Radical Chic, That Party at Lenny's, described by one reviewer as a morbid account of Leonard Bernstein's 1970 fundraising soiree for the Panther 21. Joseph noted that after Wolf wrote his article, the party fundraisers of wealthy New York liberals ended. Joseph said he and other Panthers made bail thanks to Bernstein's party. Joseph felt that Wolf had unfairly made fun of the very sincere Bernsteins. It kind of put a derisive label on good work that was happening. The documentary charts the course of the conservative Wolf's career, perhaps most interestingly, his big break. In the summer of 1962, he landed his third newspaper job at the New York Herald Tribune, but that winter the New York papers were struck over the automation worries of the printers. The other unions were out in solidarity, so Wolf was out of work and broke. Not explained in the movie, New York State had an unusual law that strikers could get paid after seven weeks out of work. Rather than go out on the dole, as he put it in a letter to his father, he managed to get a plum assignment from Esquire magazine. As Wolf explained to Lewis in his article that it didn't make it into the movie, if you wanted benefits, you had to march. I thought it was so demeaning to be out there on the picket line. Wolf went out to California to cover a subculture of youth's custom-made cars. He came back four weeks later after running up a huge hotel bill with a giant case of writer's block. Esquire editor Byron Dowell told him the night before the deadline, write anything and we'll get someone to hammer out the details. The magazine had to go all in. They had already spent $10,000 on the photo spread. So Wolf wrote what he saw as a letter to Dobo. It became 49 pages. Dobo was impressed with the results, crossed out Dear Byron, and printed it. And the rest, as they say, is history. A pretty good intro into Wolf and his work. The documentary and the Michael Lewis Vanity Fair article are both worth your time. Up next, a weird movie that strangely got 11 Academy Award nominations. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. And that was a clip from the trailer for Poor Things, directed by Yogis Lanthimos, that also gave us The Lobster in 2018. The Lobster was the main reason I put off seeing this movie. It was a truly weird sci-fi movie with a touch of horror. Poor Things is also a weird sci-fi movie with a touch of horror, based on a novel by the same name by Alistair Gray. It's a retelling of the Frankenstein story. Only this time, Frankenstein is a woman, Bella Baxter, Emma Stone. In this version, her creator is a scarred internally and externally mad scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter, a great Willem Dafoe. He has found her dead body washed ashore. Dr. Baxter sees she is pregnant and proceeds to put the live child's brain into the adult's dead body and reanimates it. Bella awakens with the mind of a baby and no memory of her past life. The doctor decides to hire an assistant to write down his observations of Bella, a medical student, Max McCradles, Rami Yosef. Max, strangely but predictably, falls for Bella and wants to marry her. The protective doctor approves, and he has a legal agreement drawn up. Enter unscrupulous horny lawyer Duncan Wedderburn, Mark Ruffalo, playing against type. Duncan promptly seduces Bella, who has become fascinated with masturbation, 
and is obsessed with sex. Duncan spirits her away on what he promises will be a grand adventure. Bella, it should be noted, has been confined for her own safety, she is assured, to the doctor's sizable residence. Once free, she proves too much to handle for the scheming Duncan, and misadventures ensue. The movie contains a lot of graphic sex, some humor, and actors that are all in on their roles, especially Emma Stone as Bella Baxter. The technical stuff is striking. There are amazing skylines. The cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, deserves the Academy Award nomination, but I just can't recommend it. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Charlie Belosky. Special thanks to feature contributor Harry Richardson. Thanks also to Nicholas Lee for technical production and Bill Kingsbury for web production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcasts. You're able to subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.